You are listening to a message from City Church of Richmond, located in Richmond, Virginia. We are a broken people, loved by God, continually restored by Christ, and sent out to worship God, serve our city, and work for its renewal. To learn more about City Church and to find out how to get connected to our community, visit our website at citychurchrva.com. That's C-I-T-Y-C-H-U-R-C-H-R-V-A.com. And thanks for listening. Have you ever done something that uh, your family just won't let you forget? My family's that way with my sense of direction. When I first started driving, when I first got my permit, then my license, I got lost a lot. And so now, every time they hear that I'm going to go on a road trip, you know, the jokes just keep coming, you know, on the family group chats. Um, even though it was like 20 years ago that I got lost, and you know, since then we have this little thing called Google Maps that I use religiously. You can tell that I'm not bitter about this, obviously, but they won't let it go. I blame this partially on my dad's uh, direction giving. So growing up in the country, uh, his landmarks were a bit, shall we say, redneck. <laughs> one time he told me, I'm not joking, one time he said, uh, yeah, you're going to drive on County Road 398 for about 10 miles, and then when you get to the fence that has a bunch of when you get to the fence that has a bunch of catfish heads on it, you're going to turn left. No joke. Literally one of the ways he told me to uh, directions he gave me. To be fair, though, I did give them lots of material to work with. One of the most infamous was I was in high school. I was on my way to uh, Jackson, which is our state, you know, Mississippi state capital. So I was on my way to Jackson. Two things you need to know about Jackson. First of all, it's in Mississippi. Second of all, it's to the south of where I lived. You can probably see where this was going. Uh, I get in the car. You know, I print out my MapQuest directions. Uh, I get in the car. I pop in my favorite CDs. And I'm just cruising. I'm not thinking about where I'm going. Just glad to be out of the house. And I'm not paying attention at all to the road signs as they breeze by. Until... I get to the run, one really large road sign that says, Welcome to Alabama. Alabama, not Mississippi, to the east of me, not to the south of where I lived. I, for an hour and a half, had just been bar- barreling obliviously down the road in the wrong direction. And so all I could do was pull over, make a U-turn, and go in the opposite direction, retrace my steps. Last week, if you were here, Eric preached a real convicting sermon on a text that immediately precedes ours today. It's in that text, Jesus is talking about how there's all of these signs that are pointing to the coming judgment of God against sin. Well, today we're going to continue in Jesus's line of teaching, and we're going to learn what we can do to come out on the other side of that judgment, to withstand the storm of God's judgment against sin, we can repent. We can make a U-turn. We can stop going the wrong way and start going the right way. So if you would, please turn with me to Luke 13. Luke 13. We're going to look at verses 1 through 9. There were some present at the very time who told him 
about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be found pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. All right, this is a pretty straightforward passage, so I want us to consider it under two simple headings. The problem and the solution. First, let's consider the problem, which is this. You're so much worse off than you think you are. You're so much worse off than you think you are. In the verses immediately prior to today's text, Jesus, once again, is talking about God's coming judgment on sin. And he says this, As you go with the accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with the accuser on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you've paid the very last penny. It's an arresting illustration, pun intended. And the point here is clear. Get right with God before you stand before him as judge. And in response to this, Jesus' listeners did what any of us would have done when we received such a frank and direct confrontational illustration. They started to put the attention on someone else. You know what, Jesus, they said, you know what, you are so right. And you know who I wish would have heard this? Those Galileans that Pilate killed while they were worshiping. I wish they had heard this before they were were taken away. You see, in Jesus' time, they believed that if uh, someone suffered a tragedy, it was a sign that God was judging their sin. So for something terrible like this to happen, it must have meant that those Galileans were particularly terrible people. They were particularly heinous sinners. They're thinking, surely those are the kind of people that Jesus is talking about that need to get right with God. And of course what they're doing is, we can call it comparative righteousness, Trying to make yourself look better by comparing yourself to someone who you think is worse off than you. Trying to establish that you're not like those other sinners, you're one of the good ones. And I don't think I have to do much to convince you that we do this today all the time. Virtue signaling is behind so much of what we do. 
It's behind what we post on social media. It's behind the, the um, placards that we put in the yards, the flags that we put on our porches. It's behind the books we read, the podcasts that we listen to. We're always trying to establish, no, 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 I'm one of the good ones. And we even do this, sadly, within the church. I mean, how many of you, like me, have been having a conversation with a non-believing friend or coworker, and you say something uh, which is explicitly or implicitly communicating this, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I'm not like those kinds of Christians. If we're honest, I think we're a bit like the Pharisee that Jesus talks about in Luke 18. The Pharisee that prays, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, the unjust, adulterers, and even this tax collector. But do you remember how the rest of that parable goes? This loathsome tax collector, this person whom the Israelites thought represented all that was wrong with Roman-occupied Judea. The tax collector beats his chest And he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And what does Jesus say? It's the tax collector, not the Pharisee, who was right with God. And he was right with God because the tax collector, unlike the Pharisee, correctly understood his problem. That he's so much worse off than he thought that all he could do was appeal to the mercy of God. That's the only recourse that he had. And that's what Jesus is trying to get the people in today's passage uh, to recognize. Listen to how he responds to them in verses 2 to 3. Do you think that those Galileans were worse sinners than others because they suffered this way? No. I tell you, unless you repent, you'll all likewise perish. And then to drive home the point, he brings up another tragedy that happens. He issues the same warning. And what he's trying to tell the people in the crowd is that they've misread the signs. You see, they thought these tragedies were signs of God's judgment against those sinners over there. That certain kind of people that are on God's bad side. But what Jesus is saying is that these signs are God's, the surety of God's coming judgment for everyone. Now that sounds a bit harsh. Why would I say that? Well, think about what Paul, quoting the psalmist, says. None is righteous. No, not one. And then he actually digs in deeper when he says in Ephesians 2 that, in fact, not only are you not righteous, but you're dead in your sins. And Paul isn't being hyperbolic. He's just riffing on what Jesus talks about in this passage and elsewhere. I mean, think about the, G- the imagery that Jesus uses in the parable. A fig tree that bears no fruit. It's a tree that's functionally dead. You see, friends, in all of our comparative righteousness, and I'm not pointing that finger at you, I do it too. In all of our comparative righteousness, the problem is we're not comparing ourselves to the right person. You see, we're comparing ourselves along the horizontal plane to other people, to other sinners. So, of course, it's easy for us to have a kind of uh, veneer of relative righteousness. But when we start to compare ourselves along the vertical plane, 
We start to compare ourselves, as Julie talked about earlier, to a perfect God. When we compare ourselves to his law, which we're bound to obey under threat of death. When we compare ourselves to that, we start to see our problem rightly. We're far worse off than we could ever imagine. Now, that's the bad news. Here's the good news. Jesus is far more merciful than we could ever imagine. In this parable, Jesus is the vine dresser, tending this fruitless tree, pleading with the landowner to give him just one more year. And if you're anything like me, a person who often feels a lot like a fruitless tree, this is great news. You see, there's a solution to our problem. And it's the solution that Jesus talks about twice in this passage. It's repentance. Turning away from our sin and turning to Christ. Turning away from the thing that works death in our life and turning unto the full life that we have in Jesus. Now, repentance, admittedly, is a churchy word. And so, even, you know, I've said it a bunch already, and I'm sure that for many of you, it's just kind of like white noise. So what I want to do is I want us to take a minute to pause and to define it. What are we talking about when we talk about repentance? Now, to do that, I could, you know, walk you through both the Old and New Testaments, looking at all the various ways that Scripture talks about repentance. But frankly, that would be a sermon series in and of itself. So what I'm going to do is I want to use the definition given to us in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which our denomination holds to be a faithful summary of the teaching of Scripture. It says this, Repentance unto life is a saving grace, whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, does, with grief and hatred for sin, turn from it unto God, with full purpose of, it, of an endeavor after new obedience. Let me read that one more time. Repentance unto life is a saving grace, whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, does, with grief and hatred for sin, turn from it unto God, with full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience. Now, I want to point out three things from this. First, I want you to notice how the definition begins. Repentance unto life. Unto life. I draw your attention to this because repentance can so often feel like a downer. And admittedly, it is. No one likes to be told they're wrong, deathly wrong even. But whenever we talk about repentance, it's easy for us to think that Jesus is just wanting to suck all the fun out of life. You know, when I lived in Romania, um, evangelicals were, were called pokaitsi, which means repenters. And it wasn't a good thing. It was a pejorative that people used to try and say, like, they were the Debbie Downers of society. It was, a, it was wrongfully used against them, just kind of in the same way that we wrongfully just, you know, say, oh, yeah, the Puritans, they were the Debbie Downers of a long time ago. Or we may look at some group like the Amish and, and feel that way. But the Bible talks about repentance in a completely different light. As a pastor, a friend of mine put it when I was talking with, about, with him about this the other day, he said, repentance isn't something that extracts life 
from us, but rather repentance is something that injects life into us. Repentance doesn't take life from us, it gives life to us. Repentance doesn't take joy away from life, but rather it gives us the truest and greatest joy that we can have, which is walking with our maker. Listen to Acts 3 verses 19 to 20. Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing might come from the presence of the Lord. That times of refreshment might come from the presence of the Lord. That's how the Bible talks about repentance. Think again about the parable that Jesus gives. Without repentance, we're fruitless. We're dried up. We're burnt out. But as Jesus applies to us the Holy Spirit, like he applies this, like the vine dresser applies the soil to this fruitless tree, and we, if we respond in repentance to that, we can come alive again. We can bear fruit again. I love how C.S. Lewis wrote about this. He's writing about repentance. And he says, does that sound very gloomy? Does Christianity encourage morbid introspection? Well, the alternative is much more morbid. Those who do not think about their own sins make up for it by thinking incessantly about the sins of others. It's healthier to think of one's own sin. It's the reverse of morbid. It's not even, in the long run, very gloomy. A serious attempt to repent and really to know one's own sin is, in the long run, a lightening and relieving relieving process. So repentance is repentance unto life. Second, uh, I want you to notice how the catechism calls repentance a saving grace. Remember, all of the Christian life is predicated upon grace, even repentance. You know, I don't know where it comes from, but there's some misconceptions we have about repentance. That it's something that we do in order to then have access to God's grace. But remember how Paul describes us in Ephesians 2. Dead in sin. A dead person can't do anything, much less repent. This is why Paul, in a chapter earlier in Ephesians 1, writes this. In him we have the forgiveness of our forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Repentance is a saving grace that comes from God by the Holy Spirit. And what this means this is important. This means that the efficacy of your repentance is not pegged on the quality of your repentance. Now, don't get me wrong. It's good to repent well, to repent often, to repent thoroughly, to repent specifically But that is not what gets God to forgive you. God forgives you because your sins were put upon Christ on the cross way before any of you were born, I think. This is a pretty young congregation. Before you even took a breath, Christ had paid for your sins. So repentance is something that comes to us by his grace. And rather than making us lax in repentance, that's usually the fear, Rather than making us lax in it, the wonder of God's grace should embolden our repentance. You know, it's, it's kind of like going to the buffet at an all-inclusive. It's already been paid for, so get, you know, get your money's worth. Really go for it. Get, a, get a second dessert. Get a third dessert. We just took our kids to an all-inclusive, and uh, they had ice cream twice a day for six days. 
Um, my daughter, some days that was the only thing that she ate. She was living in Christian freedom. Look, friends, the same thing's true here. Jesus has paid for every last sin that you've ever committed, every last sin that you will ever commit, every last sin you could even think to commit. So why not go again and again and again and again to the unending well of his grace through repentance so that you can experience the refreshment that comes through his presence? Third, I want you to notice that repentance is holistic. It involves how we think, how we feel, and how we act. Again, we have a misconception um, that we tend to prioritize one of those things over the other. We can make repentance a purely intellectual activity, just kind of, yes, I intellectually assent to the fact that I'm a sinner, I agree with that, and that's enough. Some of us are really tempted to make it just an emotional thing, kind of whipping ourselves on the back, thinking if I feel bad enough, then I'll really be repentant. And then for some of us, it's all about action plans and performance reviews. Well, if I do the right things, then God will really forgive me. But Scripture says that repentance is all three. And that's because repentance is the fruit of regeneration, which is when the Holy Spirit comes and gives you a new heart. You see, in sin, your heart was dead towards God, like Paul talks about in Ephesians 2. But then God breathes the Holy Spirit into you. He gives you a new heart, one that's alive towards him. And in the Bible, and in the ancient Near East, whenever they talked about the heart, the heart wasn't just emotions. The heart included the entire person, our thinking, our feeling, and our doing. And so repentance in a biblical uh, definition, involves all three as well. Listen for this in the Catechism. Repentance unto life is a saving grace, whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God, thinking, in Christ, does, with grief and hatred of sin, feeling, turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience, doing or acting. So it involves how we think, specifically it involves how we think about ourselves, that we start to see more and more of our own sin in our life. It says here a true sense of our sin. But it also involves how we think about God. Namely, like I said earlier, that he is more merciful than we could ever imagine. You know, the unregenerate person, the person that's not in Christ, that doesn't have an alive, a heart alive to God, the unregenerate person thinks that they don't really have anything to repent for. And they also think that God, even if he does exist, he's probably stingy and withholding. He's kind of like the cosmic Santa Claus sitting up there determining who's wrong and who's right, who's going to get coal and who's going to get presents. But the regenerate person, the person whose heart has been made alive by the Holy Spirit, recognizes that they are a great sinner, but Christ is an even greater Savior. It also involves how we feel, namely, as the catechism puts it, grief and hatred for our sin. And now I think it's really important here that we distinguish between grief and hatred for our sin and grief and hatred for being caught for sinning. Or maybe grief and hatred for the consequences of our sin. You see, if you only hate getting caught then you're never going to try hard to resist sin. You're only going to try hard to hide your sin. And strangely enough, the way that we grow in hating sin is by reflecting more and more on the love of Christ. 
you know, in an, uh, in, if, if a person uh, is an addict and they have an intervention or, or they go to rehab, one of the techniques that they sometimes use are what's called impact statements. And these are letters that are written by a loved one to the addict that tells them the way that this person's addiction has affected them. And whenever you write one of those, you want to communicate two things at least. You want to communicate your love and your acceptance of them, but you also want to communicate honestly about how it's hurt you and how it's hurt you watching them wreck their life. And the idea here is that when a person sees that, they'll be so overcome by the love of that person that it will help steal them against temptation to fall back into addiction. Well, the same is true for us with sin. Whenever we're tempted, we need to look constantly to the cross and remember that God so loved us that he gave his only son so that none of us would perish but would have eternal life. Those are the links that God went to out of love to redeem us from our sin. So why would we go back to it? And because of that, when we do sin, this is not a popular thing to say, but we should feel shame over it. You know, I remember when I was a kid and I asked um, one Christmas for Power Ranger gloves. And I think I asked, I, I don't know if it was the blue or the red Power Ranger, but my sister, God bless her, I have a, 12, a sister who's 12 years older than me, she got me the Power Ranger gloves, but she got me the wrong color. And I went ballistic. I... I was such a brat. I threw such a fit. I think I even like got them and threw them on the ground. And she's forgiven me for that. She gave, she's, she's a godly woman. She forgave me for it then and she's forgiven me for it since. To this day, I feel shame about that. Because she approached me, she used her hard-earned money and she approached me in love and I turned it away with contempt. I'm sure you can think of something that you've done in your life where you've done something similar. And I'm sure that you probably still feel some measure of shame and you feel awful about it. And I'm sure that it probably actually drives you to be more gracious to people and to think again when you uh, might try and go ballistic when something doesn't go your way. Well, how much more so should it be when God extends his love to us again and again and again and again and we push it aside with contempt in favor of sin. We should feel ashamed about that. But that shame should then lead us to hate our sin because we realize what it does towards God and what it does to us. And then that hate should lead us to a renewed obedience. It's thinking, it's feeling, and it's acting. Because repentance involves what we do. As the Catechism puts it, turning from sin unto God with full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience. Or as Jesus puts it in the parable today, bearing fruit. You know, put simply, it means that uh, true repentance results in a new posture towards sin. You don't immediately give in to it, but rather you put up a fight. Now let's be clear, it doesn't mean... You know, you're kind of progressing from, uh, from better to best to sinless perfectionism. No, look, friends, you and I both, we are going to struggle with sin until the day that we die. Because when we are glorified by Christ in heaven, then we'll be delivered from sin. But 
A life of repentance is one that fights against sin. It's not about the presence of sin, it's about the fight. Because you've learned to hate it, because it's what keeps you from the refreshment that comes from the presence of God. So practically speaking, what does that look like? Well, it's going to look different for each person. But one of the helpful ways that I think about it is the way Paul uh, talks about sanctification as it's a putting off and a putting on. A putting off and a putting on. It's putting off sin and putting on righteousness or virtue. Let's make it really practical. Let's say you're fighting uh, greed and envy. Putting off sin means separating from yourself, yourself from the things that stir up greed and envy within you, and putting, and then that's putting off. But then putting on means uh, encouraging or, or bringing yourself near to the things that in, increase in you gratefulness and contentment. You know, one thing, one way that you might fight against the sin of greed and envy is to change who you who you hang around. Limit the time you spend with people who stoke greed and envy within you and hang around more with people who exhibit contentment and gratefulness. Maybe spend less time at the pool in the country club and spend more time among, say, our city's immigrant communities. Let them teach you gratitude and commitment. Let them aid you in bearing fruit, keeping with repentance. So friends, in closing, the application today is pretty, pretty simple. Repent. Read, this, read the road signs of God's coming judgment for sin and make the U-turn. Repent. Throw yourself on the mercy of Jesus Christ, which is always open and available to you. You know, maybe you're in here and you've never repented before. Maybe this is your first time in a church. Or maybe you're in here uh, and you're a Christian, but it's been a long time that you've repented. How do we do it? Well, three A's. Admit, ask, and act. Admit, ask, and act. Admit that you're lost without Christ. Admit that you're so much worse off than you ever thought you were. Admit, as the Book of Common Prayer puts it, that there is no health within you. And then ask God for forgiveness and ask Him for the grace to love Him more than sin. Pray along with the penitent tax collector, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then act Put off sin and put on righteousness. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Admit, ask, act, and then do it all over again and again. All day, every day. You see, friends, repentance isn't something that you just do once when you walk the aisle, but rather repentance is a, it's a lifestyle. Repentance and faith are the breathing in and breathing out of the Christian life. This is why Martin Luther began his 95 Theses with this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed the entire life of the believer to be one of repentance. So friends, today, repent and live. Would you pray with me?
Father, we thank you for the grace of repentance unto life. We are well aware of the many places in our lives in which sin is wrecking us. It is making life terrible and awful, but we can't get away from it. So Father, through your Holy Spirit, would you empower us to repent? Would you empower us to turn away from the forces of death in life and turn towards you, the power of new life? Father, um, for those in here who have... uh, who may not know you, I pray that today is the day of repentance. I pray that they walk out of here knowing the joy of being forgiven and knowing that you are on their side forever and always. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.